Well, good morning, friends. I am excited. Here we are, the series finale of Exodus. After following the Israelites through the book of Exodus all spring, we have finally reached the end of their journey. The Israelites were in uh, Egypt for 430 years before God rescued them. And some of you may feel like it's been 430 years that we've been going through Exodus, but it's only been 14 weeks and we have made it. Today, we are wrapping it all up. If you know the general story of the Israelites, you may think that today we're going to talk about the Israelites entering the promised land. After all, uh, God has promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Uh, And if you think that, you're partly right. You're partly right. But what we're going to find today is that the promised land is not quite what we thought. We're going to look together at a passage from Exodus 33, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 12. So hear the word of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. May God bless the reading of his word. Having kids is an amazing experience. You learn all sorts of things when you have kids. One of the things that I learned is that it's possible to go four months without ever a single time sleeping all night long. Another thing I learned is that if you go for four months without sleeping all night long a single time, it can turn you into a bitter, bitter person. I learned that stepping on a Lego barefoot in the middle of the night causes you to think words you shouldn't think if you work at a church. One of the most interesting phenomena I learned about as my kids got older is something called selective hearing. You familiar with this? Selective hearing. Both my kids were diagnosed at an early age, officially. I mean, they could hear Joanna and me whisper about ice cream from 100 yards away. But somehow they couldn't hear us yelling about dishes around the same kitchen table. It's amazing, really. The truth is, all of us are afflicted with selective hearing from time to time, aren't we? I mean, we don't always hear the whole story. We don't always see the whole picture. Sometimes we focus so much on one part of the landscape that we miss something else entirely. We we miss the forest for the trees, right? Well, the Israelites were definitely afflicted with selective hearing, especially when it came to the promised land. They didn't hear the whole story. They didn't see the full picture. In today's passage, though, Moses is going to help us see the promised land more clearly. So this morning, we're going to be looking at two different views of the promised land. First, we'll look at the Israelites' view, and then we'll look at Moses' view, okay? So first, the Israelites' view of the promised land. From their viewpoint, the promised land is a place. If you were to ask the average Israelite during the time of the Exodus, what is the promised land? They would start talking about a place. They would talk about uh, how God had promised to their ancestors to bring them to a land, and not just any land, right? A land that was beautiful. It was rich with resources. They described it as flowing with milk and honey. Now, why did they think that? Because that's what God told them. 
Let's go back and look at some of God's promises. Do you remember Moses uh, at the burning bush in Exodus 3? God said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into, and here it is, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, don't worry about this uh, blocked out part. It's probably not important. Uh, They're talking about a land, a land flowing with ice cold milk for their Oreos, sweet honey for their biscuits. A few chapters later in Exodus 6, God gives a message to Moses for the Israelites. He says, say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And again, let's just kind of skip over this blocked out part. And I will bring you to, here it is, the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, these promises didn't actually start with Moses. They started centuries before with Abraham. Let's look at a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. The whole land of Canaan, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. You see it? From the Israelites' view, the promised land is a place, an amazing place where all their circumstances would be just the way they wanted them, where all their troubles would disappear. But if you've been paying attention to the series, you know there's a problem, right? Because they may have escaped from Egypt but their troubles have not disappeared. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It almost seems like their troubles have amplified, right? I mean, they, they, they were rescued from Egypt, but just a few weeks after that, they find themselves uh, backed up against the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other side, and it looks like they're about to be slaughtered. And then, of course, God rescues them through the sea miraculously. And just a few days later, they're out of water, they're out of food, and it looks like they're going to starve to death. And again, God miraculously rescues them. He gives them water from a rock and manna from heaven. But then they go to Mount Sinai and their leader, Moses, the one who led them out of Egypt, is gone so long on Mount Sinai, they think, man, maybe he's abandoned us. Maybe an animal got him. And so they convince Aaron uh, to build them an idol in the shape of a golden calf. Are you getting the picture? They've been promised this amazing place where all their troubles would disappear. All their circumstances would line up just right. But if there really is a promised land, and I have to think that some of them were beginning to doubt if it was even in existence. If there really was a promised land, they certainly weren't there yet. Because if they were, it wouldn't be this way. When I was younger, uh, I saw a musical called West Side Stories. Anybody seen West Side Story? A few old people like me? Okay. Uh, in, this, in this musical, there's a beautiful duet called Somewhere. And uh, it's sung by the two leads in the musical, a young guy named Tony and a young woman named Maria. Tony is in a gang in New York, and Maria is the sister of a guy that's in a rival gang. And so you know where where this is headed probably, right? The odds are stacked against them, but against all odds, they fall in love. But because of this gang rivalry, they can't be together. And they sing this wonderfully beautiful song called Somewhere. The lyrics go like this. There's a place for us. Somewhere, a place for us. And in in the chorus, someday, somewhere, we'll find a new way of living. We'll find a way of forgiving. Somewhere. Somewhere. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? And a beautiful dream. They're saying there's a place somewhere. There's a promised land out there where all our circumstances are going to be just right, where we can be together, where we'll be happy. When our kids were young, something reminded me of that, that song. And I said, hey, let's watch West Side Story together. So we did on a family movie night. 
It's just one problem. All I remembered was the song. I didn't remember the plot of the movie, and I forgot that it's based on Romeo and Juliet. And in the very last scene, Tony is shot and he dies in Maria's arms. My kids were so angry with us. Dad, why'd you wake us watch that movie? They didn't talk to me for two days. I wonder if that's how the Israelites felt. They've been singing the song, somewhere there's a place for us. And then in what feels like the final scene, the dream is shattered. Have you ever felt that way? God, I thought when I decided to follow you, it was supposed to make things better. I thought all my circumstances were supposed to be just the way I wanted. I thought I was supposed to get a promotion, not a pink slip. I thought my marriage was supposed to be easy and pleasant and work out. I thought my kids weren't supposed to rebel. I thought we weren't supposed to have pandemics. God, what's going on? I thought I was going to the promised land. It's so tempting to think that the promised land is a place, isn't it? That upgrading our circumstances is the key to happiness. If I could just have this one thing, if I could just accomplish this one goal, if I could just fix this one problem, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, then I'd be happy. But somehow, it always seems to stay just out of reach. But thankfully, Moses is gonna help us see a different view of the promised land. For the Israelites, the promised land is a place. But for Moses, the promised land is a presence, a presence. Look at Exodus 33. The people are getting ready to leave Mount Sinai and Moses comes to God and says, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses doesn't ask for better circumstances, does he? He doesn't ask God to put him on the next flight to Canaan. No, he says, teach me your ways so I may know you. Moses' highest priority was not his circumstances, it's his relationship with God. And then further down in verses 15 and 16, Moses makes what I think is one of the most amazing, most stunning, most faith-filled and insightful requests in all of Scripture. Moses says to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else, he says, will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. It's just so beautiful to me, it's so powerful. Remember, Moses is in the desert, he's in God's presence at Mount Sinai, and now faced with the prospect of going to the promised land, a place, without God's presence, Moses says, I'd rather stay in the desert forever than go to the land of milk and honey without you. Moses knew that the promised land wasn't just a place, it was a presence. As author Ruth Haley Barton puts it, for Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. And that means that no place, no matter how much milk and honey there may be there, no place could truly be the promised land unless God's presence was there. One of the blessings of being a pastor is you get to be a part of a lot of weddings. And it's so much fun to be around the couple and their families on that most special of days. So imagine with me for a minute, if you will, uh, a young woman who is getting married and she's been dreaming about the station since she was a little girl. She's been working so hard over the last months and everything is ready. The venue is picked out. I mean, she's getting married overlooking the ocean at sunset on a 75 degree day. 
The menu is picked out. It's grilled salmon on a bed of risotto. The band for the reception is picked out. It's the most highly sought after wedding band in the whole state. Sounds amazing, right? Well, let's say the big day arrives. The guests are seated. The salmon's on the grill. The band is ready to play. The bride walks down the aisle and there at the altar, there's no groom. And the bride says, it's okay. You know, the wedding coordinator told me a few minor details wouldn't work out. We have everything we need. Let's just keep on going. No, no, right? Of course not, because it doesn't matter how great the venue is. It doesn't matter how tasty the salmon is. A wedding isn't a wedding without someone to marry, right? That's what Moses is saying here. He's saying, look, all the great circumstances in the world can never satisfy without your presence, God. God, if we don't have you, if we don't have your presence, Canaan's not going to be the promised land. The true promised land is wherever you are. God must have been so pleased with this request because his plan all along wasn't to send the Israelites to a nice place. It was to be their God, to be in relationship with them. Remember those verses we looked at uh, a few minutes ago, the ones with the, the blacked out parts? Let's look at them again, but let's now see what we were missing before. Exodus 3, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land, and then here's the place part, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But look what's behind this blacked out part. And God said, I will be with you. Okay, let's look at Exodus 6, the next one. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. But what's behind here? I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And back in Genesis 17, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I'll give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and you probably have figured it out by now, what's behind here? And I will be their God. The promised land was never intended to just be a place. It's a presence. It's a relationship with the one who can make anywhere we are the promised land. Now the truth is, God actually was leading the Israelites to a place. And it was amazing. And so often, he does change our circumstances for the better. Amen? God works in tremendous and miraculous ways to bless his people. But as wonderful as it is when he turns our mourning into dancing... As fantastic as it is when he rains down manna from heaven, the real gift, the true gift, is his presence. In John 6, Jesus was talking with some of the people who were there the day that he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. You remember that miraculous story? He's talking with some of the people who were there, and they were actually referring back to Exodus. They, they said, you remember when, when Moses uh, gave the people bread from heaven, Manna, and Jesus said something very interesting. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. He's saying, look, it's not about the bread. I'm what you need. My presence is what you're looking for. I love the way Ruth Haley Barton again puts this. She says, could it be, could it be that the promised land is less about a destination and more about a way of life that enables us to worship and love God fully? Is the land flowing with milk and honey a metaphor for this way of life that's good and satisfying and enables you to be with God? 
Is it possible to have encountered God so richly that no matter what we're working toward here on this earth, we know we already have what we most deeply want, the presence of God? And don't you want to live that way? I do, and I do. But sometimes, if we're honest, it feels like the door to the promised land is locked. Like we're turning the knob, we're shaking the handle, but we just can't quite get in. You may have heard Pastor Larry uh, tell the story about the time many years ago when he and I uh, drove up to a friend's lake house to do some long-range planning. And when we got there, uh, we realized uh, that we left the key back in Capel. And so we spent the afternoon doing our planning in the driveway. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? We're close. We're close to the promised land. We're, we're, We're close to the presence of God, but we just can't quite get in. The door is locked. But the question is, which side of the door is locked? Which side is the door locked from? Our our first thought is that the door is locked from God's side. I mean, this would make sense to us intuitively, right? I mean, some of us assume this is the case because after all, we're sinful. We're broken. We've messed up so many times that we deserve, honestly, to be locked out of God's presence, right? It only makes sense that the door would be locked from God's side. Others of us may not be as worried about our sin, but, but we figure that God, if he even exists at all, he's out there somewhere and he's busy with other priorities and we could never access his presence. Now, either way, uh, we assume that the door is locked from God's side, so we live our lives sitting in the driveway instead of going in the house. But what if? What if the door isn't locked from God's side after all? What if we're like the guy who locked his keys in his car and he's frustrated because it's about to rain and he left the windows rolled down? You'll get it later. Ask somebody next to you. I promise you'll get it later. What if the door is not locked from God's side? What if the door is locked from our side? Let's go back to the passage for a minute. uh, Moses asked God to send his presence with him and look how God replies. Verse 14, he says, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then a little further down, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses asked God to bless him and the people with his presence. And in his grace, God says, I'll do it. I'll do what you ask. Now, they didn't deserve it, right? Remember, this is just after the golden calf debacle. What they deserved was God's absence. They deserved God's judgment, but because of his grace and because of Moses' faithful and humble request, God gave them the gift of his presence. And by grace, that same gift is available to you and to me. Throughout the Old Testament, God's manifest presence was only available to certain people at certain times in certain places. He appeared to Abraham in Genesis. God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and then at Mount Sinai. And then then later his presence was said to be in the most holy place in the temple, in the tabernacle. Uh, But it was behind a thick veil, a curtain. I mean, the people could see the tabernacle and later they could see the temple, but they were locked out. They couldn't go inside the holy place, the most holy place, and experience God's presence for themselves. Only the high priest could go in, and that was even, only for, even for him, it was just one day a year. But when Jesus came, friends, when Jesus came, everything changed. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? 
Remember what happened to the veil? The Gospel of Matthew says that at the exact moment that Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was as if God reached down from heaven with both hands and grabbed that curtain that had separated us from God's presence and just tore it apart saying, no more. No more will my presence be closed off. No more will men and women long to be in my presence, but be locked out. Jesus has paid the price and now by faith, every place can be the most holy place. Every place can be the promised land because I am here. Church, does that excite you? Come on, wake up with me here. It's exciting. Every place can be the promised land because I am here. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. I love this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Remember, only the high priest could go in in just one day a year. But now we can go in. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Through the curtain that is his body. And so what do we do in response? Let us draw near to God. Friends, let us draw near to God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and because of his sacrifice, you and I can live all our days in the promised land of his presence when everything's going our way and when nothing's going our way. Regardless of where we are physically, we can live all our days in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So, if the door's not locked from God's side, If it's locked from our side, what is it that keeps us from coming in? A.W. Tozier talks about this question in his fantastic book, The Pursuit of God. If you've never read this book, I highly recommend it, The Pursuit of God. He explains that our difficulty in experiencing God's presence, our difficulty in seeing him comes from the blindness of our natural hearts and the relentless ubiquity of visible things. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But it's a wonderful phrase. The blindness of our natural hearts and the relentless ubiquity of visible things. In other words, there's just so much to distract us from God's presence. The visible things vying for our attention are relentless. When you combine that with a heart like mine, it's easily distracted, easily swayed, frankly, pretty self-centered. I can spend much of my time sitting on the driveway when the key the promised land is sitting in my pocket. So what do we do with this? What's, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is unlock the door and come inside. Unlock the door from our side by confessing your sins and receiving Christ's forgiveness. Unlock the door from our side and come inside by rearranging your schedule so you can spend time seeking the Lord in scripture and prayer. Unlock the door from our side by by making knowing Jesus your highest goal, your number one priority. Unlock the door by remembering that true joy and peace and fulfillment and happiness can never be found in upgraded circumstances. They're found in knowing and being known by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the curtain is torn in two. The promised land of God's presence is available to all no matter where you are. So unlock the door and come inside. One morning a while back, I was out for a run around sunrise. And uh, it was one of those beautiful mornings after it storms the night before. And, you know, there's still some scattered clouds in the sky. And I was, I was running along and just kind of enjoying the, the morning and the, the beauty of the sky. I was looking 
at the sky as it began to get more light, and I noticed that increasingly there were some, uh, some orange and some purple and some pink streaks in the sky. And I was just thinking how pretty it was when, when I realized something. I realized something that made me literally stop in the sidewalk over by the soccer fields at, at Wagon Wheel. I realized I was running west. So wait a second. I'm looking at the sunrise, but the sun doesn't rise in the west. The sun rises in the east. So I stopped in the sidewalk and I turned around and I saw the most stunning, most beautiful sunrise I've ever seen before or since. I mean, the sky was literally on fire with color. Down by the horizon, this bright orange, and then it was just radiating out across the sky with these streaks of red and purple and pink. And it was so strong that it went all the way across the sky to where I could see just the faint edge on the western horizon. And then I thought to myself, I almost missed it. I almost missed it because I was facing the wrong direction. I almost went home thinking that the sunrise was just a little bit of color in the western sky. Brothers and sisters, let's not miss the promised land. Let's not miss it. The promised land isn't just a place. It's not just about God making our circumstances a little bit better. When he does that, it's just a small reflection of the real thing. It's just a hint of color in the western sky. The true promised land is the presence of God. It's a life of indescribable beauty and joy and peace that is found in living in communion with Jesus. So friends, let's turn around. Let's turn our face toward the light of Jesus and let's live all our days in the presence of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh God, our Father, thank you so much for this gift. The gift that we sinful and unworthy as we are, can live our days in the presence of the Lord. You've been so good to us, Lord. Forgive me, forgive us when we, when we sit in the driveway with the key in our pocket. Forgive us when we're facing the wrong direction and we think that better circumstances is gonna be the key to our happiness. Lord, show us your face. Show us your mercy. Show us your love and let us become so aware of your grace, your presence in us that, as the hymn says, the things of earth grow strangely dim. God, I pray for myself. I pray for each person here in the room, each person watching online. God, give us the the wisdom to turn around and to face you. God, I pray for those especially who are here today who have never made the decision to give their heart and their life to Jesus. God, may today be the day of salvation. May may today be the day when they look full in the face of Jesus and find new life. And God, for those of us who maybe have been following Jesus for a while, but it's just so easy to get distracted by the visible things, God, forgive us. Call us to something higher. May we passionately follow Jesus together as a church. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.